And there seems to be these blocks or myths about self-compassion that make people think it's actually not a very good thing to do. And these are reinforced by culture. Um, and they seem to be pretty universal. I mean, I've, I've come up with these into these same blocks, no matter what audience I talk to. Greetings, Zestful Agers. Today is International Women's Day, and we have a special treat for you to celebrate. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Kristen Neff, who is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first studies on self-compassion 15 years ago. Hear Kristen talk about the importance of having self-compassion to help us be more joyful and to have more compassion for others. Self-compassion is a game changer, as you'll hear. Enjoy the interview and happy International Women's Day. Welcome to Zestful Aging, Kristen. The first question I want to ask you, Kristen, is what led you to study self-compassion in the first place? Well, I mean, it was really a personal journey for me. I, I started out by practicing self-compassion in my own personal life and saw its benefits. Um, what had happened, actually, was it was my last year of graduate school at UC Berkeley, uh, and basically, I was under a lot of stress. I had just gotten a divorce and was feeling a lot of shame and just, you know, emotional upheaval. And uh, there was also a lot of stress about finishing my PhD. Well, actually, not so much finishing, but would I get a job after investing mm -hmm. seven years of my life in this? And so, you know, I'd heard about meditation and that it was supposed to be good for stress. So I decided to learn to meditate. Uh, and, and luckily for me, the woman leading the group, the very first night I went, was talking a lot about self-compassion, about how we needed to cultivate compassion for ourselves in addition to others, uh, especially when we are struggling in some way. And so I never really thought about that before. And so I, I tried practicing it. I, I tried kind of intentionally being a good friend to myself, being more supportive. And I was just blown away, to be honest, by the, the difference it made, that, that little shift in attention from being lost in my pain to like being outside of myself, caring about myself, being supportive of myself in the mm. midst of the pain. And so when I finally got, I did get a job at UT Austin. Um, and, and, and at that point, no one had studied self-compassion. I mean, it, it had been talked about in various therapeutic and, and uh, spiritual traditions, but no one had actually studied it within psychology. So I thought I would, I was kind of crazy. I thought I would give it a try. And I um, tried to define it. What is self-compassion? And I created a scale to measure it. And that was 15 years ago. And, you know, now there's almost mm -hmm. 2,000 studies on the topic. It's just going like gangbusters. So. Mm -hmm. So your research at uh, UC Berkeley had nothing to do with self-compassion. No. You were just doing this as a way to, to help yourself through your own your own distress. Yeah, I was actually trained in uh, moral development. My dissertation was on reasoning about rights and responsibilities in the context of Indian family life. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it was a big left turn, um, mm -hmm. but it was a good one, yeah. And, you know, I, I know you've done a TED Talk, you've lectured on this wisely, and I'm wondering why p 
people are so resistant to being compassionate towards themselves. I'm sure you've had that feedback as well as I have as a clinician. People kind of look at you a little strangely when you mention it. Yeah, well, I think there's... um there's basically five main reasons. It's funny, I, I didn't realize at first that there was this resistance. And then I started talking to people and getting, you know, online comments on the articles I was writing or, or newspaper articles. And there seems to be these blocks or myths about self-compassion that make people think it's actually not a very good thing to do. And these are reinforced by culture. Um, mm. And they seem to be pretty universal. I mean, I've, I've come up with these into these same blocks, no matter what audience I talk to. Um, and that's that people think that it's selfish, right? We're supposed to focus on compassion for others. It's selfish to do this for ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. People confuse it with self-pity. Right? Is this just feeling sorry for yourself? That's, that can't be a good thing to do. Um, people think it's going to undermine their motivation, that they'll lose their edge, that they need to be hard on themselves to get mm-hmm. themselves going. Uh, people think it's going to mean they'll be self-indulgent and complacent. You know, oh, self-compassion. That just means like kicking back, relaxing, you know, <laughs> giving yourself pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and another big one is people think it means weakness. That mm. because compassion is kind of linked with more tender feelings of care or nurturing, people think it's going to make them soft. Um, and the the funny thing is, is all of these misconceptions, all five of them, are wrong. I mean, we have enough research now to say that that's actually not how self compassion operates. In fact, just the opposite. But they seem to be so ubiquitous in our culture that that, that they're real blocks to people being able to do that. Uh, is it just in our culture, Kristen? No. Do you see it with a puritanical, you know, sort of history, or do you find it's, it worldwide? It's worldwide. It's worldwide. No, the degree of the blocks are less, like in Thailand or some of some places where, where meditation is really integrated fully into the culture. It's a little less, um, but not much. I mean, these, these seem to be pretty uh, ubiquitous misconceptions about what self-compassion does. You know, and we aren't really raised to be kind to ourselves. All the focus is on being kind and compassionate to others. And so it just, it feel, feels weird. It's one of the problems, <laughs> you know. And so you gotta, you gotta get past those initial barriers for people to learn the skill. But, um, but the, the good thing is, is because most people have some practice being compassionate to others. I mean, we know what to say. We know what tone of voice to use. We know how to, you know, to various degrees, but most of us have learned how to be present with someone when they're struggling in some way. And so we just need to turn that skill inward and use it with ourselves. So once you get over the awkwardness of it, it's actually Mm -hmm. easier than you think. And do you find even after studying this for years and years, teaching it, researching it, do you find yourself sometimes being punitive towards yourself and kind of lapsing? Um, you know, to be honest, not, not really. Um, <laughs> what I do find is I still have lots of reasons to be self-compassionate. In other words, um, sometimes I joke, thank goodness I'm a compassion teacher, not a mindfulness teacher. Cause you know, I still get reactive and I still like say things I regret and I still lose it. And so I, I still need that sense of compassionate self-acceptance and, um, kindness. But it really, at this point for me, it's very, very rare that I would actually be harsh and punitive. Um, what is, you know, it doesn't mean the journey of self-compassion is over for me, though. What I've been working on lately is the fierce side of self-compassion, 
So I'm pretty good at being tender with myself and being, you know, kind and gentle. But this, this fear side, this kind of mama bear energy, that the side of self, the protective side of self-compassion that says, no, you know, you can't violate my boundaries or, or, you know, really gets us to take action in the world. That's really where the edge of my practice is. And that's kind of the new phase of my work, which I'm really excited about. Can you give a little example about this, the fear and the mama bear and, and what it would look like in real life? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think almost especially people who are psychologically oriented or maybe meditation teachers, there's this idea that we need to make space for anger, you know, and understanding that we shouldn't judge our anger, but there's kind of a distrust of, distrust of feelings like anger because you know they for good reason they can get us into trouble you know they can they can be harmful but um what i'm realizing so i i've actually kind of always thought of myself as a reactive person you know sometimes I used to joke that i you know kind of like i've got this bulldog side of me and, and if you if you make the bulldog angry the bulldog's gonna snap so it's funny because, you know, I'm a self-compassion teacher, but almost by necessity because I've, I've you know, I've got a lot of these qualities, right? And so, um, but what I've been realizing is that I've been approaching things um, not in the most useful way that I've kind of been, th- I've been thinking, okay, I need to maybe make space for it, or maybe if I'm just kinder with myself, I won't be so reactive. But I'm realizing that this is an energy all people have, but it's funny, it's actually a feminine energy. I, I've, been, I've been using the context of yin and yang. Yin and yang, you know, comes from Chinese philosophy. There are these two essential dialectics that are in, in every life. The yin is kind of the soft, the receptive, the nurturing, the more feminine way of being with our pain, which is mainly what I focus my self-compassion work on. And it's incredibly important, incredibly healing. But there's also a yang side of self-compassion. I mean, compassion is aimed at the alleviation of suffering. And so sometimes that means we have to, you know, draw our boundaries, protect ourselves, or we need to motivate change, or we need to really go out into the world and give ourselves, provide what we need to be fulfilled. Um, and so this is the other side of, of self-compassion. And again, neither of these, are, traditionally yang is considered more um masculine but i like to think of it as mama bear energy which is a real feminine energy you know kind of like kali the hindu Mm -hmm. goddess of you know destruction she's very very powerful and i think most women um and i don't want to be too gendered here because this is really a human thing but you know women are socialized against being angry in a way that men are not and i think women a lot of women have recognized that inside themselves there's a part of us that like can be just enraged and we're taught that this is bad, that we shouldn't go there, that it makes us ugly, and that it's dangerous, you know? And I think what I'm really coming to realize is this is an essential compa- force of compassion. Mama bear, mm. this force that protects ourselves, our children, this is something we can actually tap into and harness as long as it's balanced with the yin. See, as long as the, both energies are there. If it's, if it's just yang, then it's, you know, anger and destruction and not so good. But if both energies are there, if we're really kind of in touch with our tender and our fierce sides, that this is a really, uh, this is a, a place we can take action in the world, but also be there with ourselves. It just gives us a lot more options of how to, um, you know, be happy and thrive in our lives. And so this is where my work has been going lately. And I would say that this 
fear side. I'm only, I'm only starting more recently, the last year or two, to really love that inner bulldog. <laughs> you know, wow, that's great that I've got a bulldog side. You know, mm. it's, as long as that I'm, as long as it's not suppressed or judged, I can harness the energy of that to get a lot done in my life. Um, you know, and, and I do think that gender roles play against that. Um, you know, but if you think about everything that's happening in the world, the whole mm-hmm. Me Too movement. Yes, I, like I was to, just going to say Yeah, that. I like to think of it. It's like the collective arising of the mm-hmm. female yang. You know, it's like this huge mm-hmm. transpersonal no. You know, mm-hmm. it's not okay. We're all we're calling on our inner mama bear energy for ourselves, for our sisters, and really making a change, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, I should say, you know, this is the feminine side of it, but men as well. I mean, men are, are, they're not allowed to be yin. They aren't allowed to be vulnerable. They aren't allowed to be tender. And that's been hugely damaging to men as well. So what I'm really seeing is there's this need for all people to really honor and develop and practice being with both energies, but especially integration, which is the tricky bit. So, it reminds um, me also of some people will call that wise mind. Is that is that similar? And you know, this balancing of yin and yang, using that forcefulness, but also the thinking part. Is there a parallel there? There is a parallel. Um, the, the problem, the reason I I don't really I'm not drawn so much to those metaphors, is it still is kind of saying that that ferocious, out of control, um, reactive energy is not such a good thing, and that mm-hmm. we should be in control and wise and calm on the surface. Mm-hmm. So what I'm interested in is that, yes, wisdom has a role, but that, that getting rid of any sort of judgment of that fierce energy um, and instead really being grateful for it, celebrating mm-hmm. it, allowing it to flow freely in our bodies. While, of course, we need the wisdom and we need the, the love energy as well. And, mm-hmm. and it is tricky. And I'll be honest, I don't always get it right. I'm still a work in progress. Um, but I, I have this feeling, especially as a mindfulness and, and compassion teacher, that there's a slight sense that that's, that part of us isn't so good and that the wisdom and the equanimity is really the preferred place to be. I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really exploring all these, all these ideas and seeing where it takes me. So it's kind of fun, though, to be doing something new. I mean, the self-compassion work is amazing, and it's still mainly what I do. And the healing power of self-compassion when you mm-hmm. when you treat yourself like a friend is um, just phenomenal. But, you know, friends don't just say, oh, that's okay, dear. Friends sometimes say, get off your butt. you got to do something, mm-hmm. girl, you know, mm-hmm. like a coach or a mentor, you know, mm-hmm. or, or friends protect us. So, so really, all all of these sides are part of self compassion. And actually, the research mm-hmm. shows that self compassion is a strength. It helps us cope. It's good for soldiers in battle. I mean, it's just you really want to have your own back for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but this somehow, our, I think our conceptions of what self compassion is and what it feels like are perhaps a little limited. So, I'm really interested in trying to expand our understanding of what it means to be self-compassionate. So. Sort of the stereotypical idea of someone meditating in a totally passive state. Yes, and, and, just... and you know, and that's, that's the yin, being with, you know, being with, being present with, with love and tenderness and, all, and connectedness and all that is 
absolutely essential and beautiful and we need to cultivate that because our, our society doesn't really help us to do that. But it's only one side of the story. You know, the other side mm-hmm. is this life force energy, this active, mm-hmm. powerful energy that, you know, and, you, and it's funny, I'm talking with a lot of my colleagues, um, and if you look at the world today, we don't really have the luxury to say, I'm going to meditate and become enlightened. You know, the world is, uh, mm-hmm. is going to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at global warming, we don't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to need to take action. Mm-hmm. So um, I think this... One of the ways we can do that is by harnessing more of this active yang force. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. That's very interesting. Do you find that your students seem to be m- more open than when you first started this? Uh, are they more open to learning about this now? What, what are you seeing? Well, certainly in terms of open to learning about self-compassion, absolutely. And that's just because... Um, there's so much research. I mean, when I first started, you, you, if you Google self-compassion, you would come up with hardly anything. I mean, even in the Buddhist context, they would talk about having compassion for yourself, including mm-hmm. yourself in the circle, but the term self-compassion wasn't even really around, and, and now it's everywhere. So people have kind of, I think, gotten the idea um, in large part because of that's the great thing about science. Science can say, hey, it's it's not going to make you selfish. It's not going to undermine your motivation. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make you self-indulgent. Here, there's some research studies that show that. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gives people the sense of safety that, okay, it's not going to do all these damaging things. I think it may. Um, oh, and I see it can help people heal from abuse or from trauma and all these different, you know, issues that people face in, mm-hmm. in their life. And that gives people the sense of safety needed to say, okay, I'll give it a try. So there's, there's, um, yeah, it's really, I have to say, it's wonderful to see um, how much more acceptance there is of it in society at large. It's certainly been integrated now into more of the, you know, uh, psychotherapy practice. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of people say that it is really probably the, the key active ingredient of psychotherapy, you know. Mm. And again, like in a way, it always has been. And people gave it different names in the past. So in mm-hmm. some ways, it's not a new idea at all. I mean, look at Carl Rogers or, you know, even mm-hmm. even uh, Freud talked about, you know, therapeutic presence and all of this. Um, I think maybe what's different is there's a, a term for it, what happens when people treat themselves this way. And there's a, a way, ways to measure it and do research on it. And that's really what's mainly changed. Um, but mm-hmm. but it's an important change because it really facilitates dialogue uh, across traditions that maybe wasn't so possible before. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners just a little sort of Reader's Digest version of how they may start this. Because even though I think we can all agree it's mm-hmm. extremely beneficial and we may want to do more, mm-hmm. I find at least with my clients, it's such a different way to approach their inner world, they almost yeah. don't even know where to start. Yeah. Well, well, like I say, in a way, I mean, the nice thing about self-compassion is it's not rocket science. It really is very <laughs> simple. Um, and we are, most of us are quite experienced at doing it for others. 
So there's a couple ways you can just start out. Um, one is when you, let's say you're going through some struggle or you're feeling badly about yourself, just doing a very simple exercise. What if it was someone I cared about, a, a good friend or maybe a family member who was going through this whole, you know, experience? What would I say to them? You know, especially if I was trying to be compassionate, what, what would I say to them? What would my tone of voice be? right? Mm-hmm. What would be my, my body stance toward them? What would that look like? And then you just actually practice it with yourself. And it does feel awkward. It, do, it feels mm-hmm. awkward at first, and it can even mm-hmm. feel phony at first. But the idea is the more you practice it, the less awkward it feels. And then at some point, you know, you start to take it in. Um, another really useful thing is, is physical touch. Believe it or not, um, the two key signals activating the compassion response um, in humans, and we actually share this with with mammals, is that physical touch and soothing vocalizations, tone of voice. Right? Think mm. think of a dog or a cat. You know, they're the same. So those sounds, that the softness in the voice, as opposed to the you know cold as steel mm. voice, or um, you know, putting your hands in some place that feels supportive over your heart or cradling your cheeks or holding mm. your own hand that, that, you know, our bodies as mammals are built to calm down and relax. It activates the parasympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. when we feel cared for. And so sometimes you can actually make the, the initial inroad just with a physical gesture that helps, you know, change your nervous system reaction, helps calm you down, feel safe, and then your, your mind can follow. Um, now, now there, you know, although it's not rocket science, there are challenges. So, for instance, many people have spent their whole lives shutting down their hearts to cope with the pain of life. You know, very, very natural way that we take care of ourselves. And so when we first start opening our hearts, it can feel kind of scary. You know, like, I'm, boy, I'm open the, opening the floodgates. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, the love rushes in and the old pain rushes out. We actually have a term for that. We call it backdraft. Just like when you open the oh. doors of a house on fire, you know, the oh. air rushes in and the flames rush out. And nature pours a vacuum. So something yes. has to go in there. Yes, that's right. And so some people feel that. That's another reason why it can be difficult. But as long as people know, first of all, that it's natural, it's actually a good sign, believe it or not. It means you're, it means you're letting the air in. It means you're doing something right. You know, usually backdraft can be worked with. Um, it, as long as you don't think that, oh gosh, I'm, you know, I'm doing it wrong. No, it actually means you're doing it right. You're opening the door of your heart, but you need to go slowly. You need to go at your own pace. You know, actually what firefighters do is they go around the building and they poke little holes. That's why they carry those pickaxes. They poke little holes around the house to let the air in slowly. So then you don't get that big explosion. And so we can actually do that for ourselves. We can, you know, try to be kind, and if it's a bit upsetting, we just pull back. And we can take care of ourselves. We can be kind to ourselves in another way. You know, if you take a walk or take a bath or, you know, do something, listen to music, if you do it with the intention, not as, a, not as an unconscious distraction, but as, as, as an intentional way to care for yourself because, you know, yeah, you're feeling backdraft and it's painful, you are actually practicing self-compassion. And you do that more at the behavioral level for a while, and then it gets to feel a little more comfortable being kind to yourself when you suffer. And then, and then eventually, you know, you can let more in and, and the doors of your heart can be open. 
Um, it's very uh, different than just saying, here are the five ways to do self-care. I'm going to get a pedicure. You can do that without being in a self-care mode, really. Or, you know what I'm saying? It's not the thing. That's not the thing. It's the intention. It's It's the the intention. intention. So like people that say who do loving kindness meditation, a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't really respond to the phrases. By the way, my, my colleague Chris Grimmer has come up with a beautiful way to help people find their own phrases. So it can be improved. But nonetheless, the way the way all self-compassion practice works is just by setting your intention to be kinder to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then what happens, happens. We don't have a lot of control over it. But we know that you, you train those neural pathways to respond with care when you suffer. Eventually, it starts becoming habit. And so, I mean, I, I can quite honestly say um, that it doesn't come up for me very often that I am harsh with myself. It's just I'm not in the habit of doing that. Um, it does come up that I have things to be <laughs> compassionate about, like I said. But, you know, um, so, you, so you really can uh, retrain your neural pathways to build the habit of, you know, whenever pain is present, the first thought is, oh, I need compassion, you know, and, and it actually can be done. So. Do you find that uh, in your peer group and and, and in, in your social group that it's important for you to be with people who understand self-compassion? Um, well, I mean, I think naturally we gravitate toward people who share value, to share our values, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, can you, does that mean you somehow can't be friends anymore with people who who aren't that way? Uh, no, I mean actually, often the most kind, the kindest and most compassionate people to others are mm-hmm. people who lack self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of nurses and teachers and people who are really giving, um, they don't necessarily treat themselves the same way. So it doesn't mean you can't be around them. Um, but I suppose I, <laughs> I do always try to kind of slip in. Well, how would you? Why don't you try uh, being a little kinder to yourself? And I, I think most people do recognize intuitively, especially once once they learn a bit about the research, they recognize its value. Um, you know, and but it feels difficult. But I, I I must say one of the things that surprised me more than anything is that it's not as difficult as I would have thought for people to learn how to do this. Again, because it's really about giving yourself permission, changing your intention, and the rest kind of happens more naturally. It's, it's, you know, like I say, it's not rocket science. It's easier than meditation, I gotta say. You can use meditation as a way to cultivate self-compassion. Very powerful way. Meditation's great. But, you know, some people aren't into meditation. So with self-compassion, you can just put your hand on your heart and say, oh, sweetheart, ouch, that hurts. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like doesn't take as much focus or take as much time. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is a very uh, realistic way we can uh, uh, cope with our difficulty and deal with mm-hmm. our pain. Um, and I think that's why there's so much interest in it. Yeah, it reminds me of something Tara Brock might suggest as well is in terms of the um, self-compassion, hand on heart, ouch. Yes, Yes. exactly. Mm -hmm. That's all you need. That's all you need. Mm -hmm. So you've co-developed this um, eight-week training program, and is that available to lay people? And how does does one uh, get started with that? Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually designed for lay people. I mean, a lot of therapists take it, but it's not a professional program. If you go to... um, uh, Center for MSC, 
which is a website mm-hmm. center for msc.org, or you just type in Mindful Self-Compassion. And our website, it shows all the places you can take the training. It's taught all over the world in six of the seven continents. Hasn't got to Antarctica yet. But, um, yeah, and then I'd also, um, you know, but still, even though the training is widely available, it's, it's not everywhere. So the, uh, Chris and I decided we were going to publish the, the training in workbook format. So you can get that now at any bookseller or Amazon. It's called the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. And it's like 14 bucks. It's a lot cheaper. And you can actually guide yourself. Um, through the program or, you know, meet with friends and you know, each week go through one chapter or something like that. So uh, the program is widely available now and it's, uh, I've been really gratified to see the positive response to it. Mm-hmm. Do you use that in your classes as well? My, my university classes? Yes. I do, as a matter of fact. I teach mm-hmm. uh, three of my four yearly courses are on mindfulness and self-compassion because, uh, you know, it's, 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 there's actually a science behind it. So it's also got an academic component to it. So I, I teach them actually a good portion of the Mindful Self-Compassion program in my classes. I'll lecture for about an hour and a half, take a little break, and then we'll practice for about an hour. Um, and it's, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. I suspect that's a, a unique class yeah. in the university. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think um, the students get a lot out of it. And it's great for me because, um, I, you know, I can practice you know, as I'm teaching. So it's wonderful. Yeah. So for, for the, the person, um, probably a woman who's listening, any other last words as they're kind of facing this, uh, maybe the third chapter that they're coming up on this new stage of life, maybe their kids have launched, maybe their career is starting to wind down, Uh they may or may not be in this gray divorce, this, you know, right. uh, ending their partnership, um, yeah. anything that, you know, it's a time of great transition and I think can be very frightening. Yeah, no, it can. Um, and, you know, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in that period. I just, I just hit menopause, right? <laughs> so that's like, mm-hmm. a, that's, so I'm kind of getting there. Um, well, I do think for a lot of women, you know, a lot of women spend, good part of their life caring for others, you know, caring for their children, caring for their partners, nurturing their work life, right? Putting a lot of energy out there in the world. Um, and, 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 and in doing so, learning a lot of skills about how to be a compassionate person, how to be a giving person, how to be supportive. You know, we've, we've learned an awful lot in our lives. And so one of the things we can do is, is just turn that lens of, or the focus of caring on ourselves, you know, really helping ourselves to be happy, to, to live according to our values, to, you know, to, to nurture ourselves in the way we need so that we can really thrive. Um, and, uh, yeah, so maybe your kids are out of the home. So focus on yourself. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it feels selfish. It feels selfish, but it's really not. And here's another reason why it's not. Um, the way the human brain works, we, we pick on, we pick up on the emotions of other people unconsciously. We have mirror neurons whose whole job it is, is to feel what other people are feeling. Mm-hmm. So when you fill yourself with compassion, when you give yourself love and kindness and warmth and care, every single person you come into contact with, 
is reading that emotion, you know, mm. through their mirror neurons. Whereas if you're like stressed out and angry and grumpy and frustrated, every single person you come to contact with is picking up on that. So, you know, this idea that it's me versus them, it's a zero sum game is actually not true. And it's not how the brain works. You know, this, this, um, the more we give ourselves love and kindness, the more other people receive that from us and the more we, we can sustain giving it to them. And it's, it's a, it's a multiplier. It's a feedback loop. Yeah. It's a positive feedback loop. Exactly. Um, so it's anything but selfish. So I think that's a very compelling argument for some people who are resisting or this yeah. just feels a little bit too foreign is this idea that when you're filled up, you can really nurture and love on a deeper level. That's right. And you can sustain mm -hmm. it. Um, and other people will actually benefit from your mm. presence when, it, when wow. your presence is loving. That's that's uh, very profound. Yeah. Um, any other uh, places you'd like to send our audience to learn more about your work? Oh, well, the other place is just, if you just Google self-compassion, my website mm -hmm. comes up, selfcompassion.org. Okay. And I've, I've tried okay. to make it a real resource. You can take your own self-compassion. Um, you can take your test, get your score. Um, I've got, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of research articles on there. If you're a, re a science nerd, um, you can listen <laughs> to videos. I've got meditations. I've, I've, it's really um, kind of one-stop shopping. It's a really good place to start um, the quest of self-compassion. And then if you want to do the actual training, there's a link to take you to um, a Center for CMSC as well. Great. Excellent. That, that I will put that in the program notes. Great. And I wish you luck on your new book. And it's Thank been you. an absolute pleasure learning about this. Uh, I think it's going to really be beneficial to our listeners. Oh, good. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.